I'm Ebony K. Williams, attorney and host. Welcome to Holding Court, where we analyze the latest legal headlines that everybody's already talking about. But we dig deep into how the courts impact the culture. We break it all down, going straight from gavel to your news feed. And every week, we keep it 100. Right, Dustin? That's right, E. Let's hold court. What's up, jurors? So we have officially come to the very end of season two of Holding Court. Now, as Dustin and I said just a couple of episodes back, y'all, we are so thankful for every single one of you. Y'all help make this show what it is. We're grateful, and y'all need to know it. Listen, if you have not already done so, please pick up a copy or listen to the audio version of my book, Bet on Black, the good news about being Black in America today. Listen, you can get it anywhere. We love a Black-owned bookstore, and also Amazon will do in a pinch. Listen, we're going to end this second season with an excerpt from that book, And the past few years have been a whirlwind to me, but y'all need to know that my heart is always remaining open and pure. I want us to win. I want us to know the financial wholeness that is available to us, not just for today, right? But for our future generations. So this excerpt from my book is what I've been preaching and will continue to preach until I take my last breath on this earth. Black folk, yes, us, we deserve to build actual tangible wealth. And listen, it's one of the primary ways in which we can be liberated. I call this chapter Leverage. Take a listen. Chapter 6. Leverage. I believe that entrepreneurship is the ultimate smart money move and the surest path towards wealth for African Americans. Far fewer blacks than whites benefit from inherited wealth or assets. Entrepreneurship is the primary way to create the sort of wealth that can be passed on and built upon by succeeding generations. Earl G. Graves, Sr. It's really, really hard to be free when you don't own anything. I'll say it one more time to let it sink in like it needs to. It's really hard to be free when you don't own anything. And yeah, I get it. Y'all might have been thinking that I've been talking in this book about our personal liberation and nuanced notions of patriotism in a more esoteric, abstract way. That I've been primarily focusing on individual and collective mindsets as opposed to the material, nitty-gritty, practical fundamentals of liberation. But don't get it twisted. I'm well aware that our freedom is deeply intertwined with our ability to own assets in America and share these resources with future generations of Black folks. This notion of how important ownership is becomes easy to comprehend when you understand Black emancipation. We know for fact that one of the ways in which Black people liberated themselves from slavery was by saving money that they earned That is, if they were fortunate enough to find themselves in circumstances where they could work for actual wages as opposed to being forced to toil. This meant nonstop hustling, if you will, renting themselves out to do factory work or iron work or shoemaking or cabinet making or whatever skills that they may have obtained during the course of their life. If they were truly fortunate, 
they could save much of that money after paying their enslavers a monthly fee and literally buy their own freedom, potentially buying the freedom of their family members as well. Let's be clear. These were woefully unjust circumstances, and black folks should never have had to pay for their legal emancipation at a time when white male property owners were given agency to do as they would throughout the land. Yet, at the same time, as I continued to study the conditions of our ancestors, I began to understand the literal correlation between liberation, emancipation, and ownership in the United States. If you could earn enough old currency and build wealth to a certain extent, you could literally purchase your liberation. And this dynamic should illustrate to us how financial stability and security are essential to a first-class Black American experience. It saddens me that I've had to gain lessons around money and resources from the time of slavery. My lessons in understanding the importance of wealth have involved a long, winding path, even though I had early examples in my family of entrepreneurship, particularly when it came to having multiple streams of income. Growing up, my mother, Gloria, would often tell me stories about my grandpa, Carrie Williams Sr. He bagged feed for horses, cows, and other animals in southeast Louisiana as his primary paycheck job while cutting hair on the side from his porch. And then on the side side, he sold booze. So he was basically running a bar, running a barber shop, and handling feed for livestock. Oh, and I should also mention he trimmed lawns for cemeteries on the weekends. My mother duplicated the example her father set for generating multiple revenue streams. So when she was in beauty school, attending classes with the goal of opening her own salon, she drove a Charlotte Mecklenburg school bus at 5 o'clock in the morning. She worked for UPS in the evenings, and then on the weekends, she would drive an airport shuttle that took flyers from short-term or long-term parking to their terminal. After opening her salon, my mom went on to open a chain of daycare facilities and also operated, of all things, a tractor-trailer business. She was the first black woman that I knew of in the South who owned and operated her own tractor-trailer company eventually having a fleet of three trucks. My mother has always been strategic about these things. She thought, if a recession hits, people may not be able to afford the luxury of getting their hair done every week for 20 bucks. And so opening a daycare facility made sense because no matter what happens to the economy, most folks will still need to have someone watch their kids. No matter what happens to the economy, goods are going to have to get from point A to point B. Like a lot of folks, most people in my family worked hard. We knew how to make money and hustle hard, but what my family had never learned how to do was create and build wealth. Earning money is quite different from wealth building. I don't want to shame my family here, but I do want to tell the truth. After all the hard work my grandfather did, and after all the tremendous work my mother has done, the amount of intergenerational assets we have access to as a family doesn't reflect their toil. 
earning money is all about making enough to make ends meet, hopefully, and enjoy the elements of life, while wealth building is all about owning financial assets that you can rely on until you die, eventually passing said assets on to forthcoming generations. Post-slavery, the United States has done its best to economically disenfranchise black communities. This has created a wealth gap that has remained in place for decades, with black families on average having far less wealth than our white counterparts. According to the Nonpartisan Policy Institute, the Center for American Progress, in 2019, the average black household had $142,330 in wealth as compared to $980,549 for the average white household. In other words, black households had merely 14.5% on average of the wealth of white households. The reasons for this are multifold. Black people were denied access to the same home ownership opportunities that our white counterparts had due to everything from legal redlining practices, where we were forced to live in less desirable areas throughout the country, to predatory lending schemes that we face throughout the 20th century. This crippled our opportunity to build wealth in our communities, as home ownership has long been seen as the primary way of building wealth in America. We've also faced work discrimination, which affects our economic outlook, and have been offered lower wages for the same work done by white people. The obstacles to financial equity and wealth building are real, and they must be stated here as we continue to grapple with their pervasive legacy. But we can't wait for white people to miraculously come to their senses and do the right thing. We must create our own opportunities for wealth building with the resources that are afforded to us and that we have on our own. Even without having access to any real wealth as a kid, I was taken care of in some ways. Because of my academic accomplishments in high school, I had people and organizations that invested in my education. Thus, I was blessed to graduate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill on a full merit scholarship without undergraduate debt, later taking on law school debt that I'm still paying back. Bet on Black Move View your education as an investment. It may go without saying that investing in a college or university education is a generally solid path to improving one's job prospects and obtaining a quality of life in which wealth building becomes easier. But don't get it twisted. You still need to be mindful of how much you're spending on your education and what your prospects will be based on the degree you attain. Before you go into major debt, for the sake of an undergraduate degree or pursue an advanced degree for that matter, ask yourself, what will be my earning potential upon graduation? Is the degree I'm going for worth all that I'm going to pay in terms of recouping my investment? Is there a cheaper way to cultivate a particular skill set? Do I really need to go to the super expensive school to be competitive in the job market? And what scholarships or fellowships can I apply for? I know lots of people still say that a liberal arts education 
is all about exploring your passions, making connections, and feeling free to connect with one's heart's desire and all that la-di-da bullshit. And yes, that ideally should be part of the experience of blackness, where college coursework is fueled primarily by one's passions and interests. I'll admit, I focused on black studies in college because it was my heart's desire to do so. But I still had a plan, receiving academic scholarships with my sights set on law school from an early age. All that to say, I'm cognizant of the reality of our situation, that so many of us are coming from more humble circumstances where money is limited. We often need to think strategically about how much we're going to invest in college so that we're relatively unencumbered when it comes to creating future wealth for ourselves and our communities. I've subsequently had all sorts of ups and downs with my salary, starting with a six-figure corporate law firm job before I took a major pay cut to be a public defender. I eventually moved away from law altogether, relocating to L.A. to build a media career while working dead-end jobs. Fast forward to 2014, when I began to work for CBS News, and I can honestly say from that point on, I've had legitimately high earnings every year. And yet, it wasn't until 2022, at the age of 38, that I would purchase my first tangible asset, a home in Harlem. I've developed a somewhat recent obsession with the black wealth gap in this nation and understanding its causes and what we can do about it. I used to be really lackadaisical around the reparations conversation, saying things like, of course they owe us money and opportunity. Of course it would be nice to receive, but realistically speaking, it's not going to happen. So let's just move on. But more recently, I've been like, bitch, what are you talking about? Like, no, they need to give us our dough, like yesterday. It's time to explore what the reparations package needs to look like. I maintain that real estate and education are two of the most important appreciable assets in modern America that Black people could use as a bedrock for closing wealth gaps and ensuring our perennial liberation as Black people in America. I'm not trying to give y'all a lecture. But my spiel about owning assets and wealth building is more of a cautionary tale, with yours truly as the misguided protagonist of the story. I really didn't focus on wealth with everything I had at the beginning of my career, and I was most certainly on the path of becoming yet another high-earning, overeducated, financially struggling individual, a plight that's all too common in our culture. There were times in my life when I'd literally made over $300,000 or $400,000 a year, and I didn't own shit other than the clothes on my back. That type of mindset was and is completely unacceptable for a fully liberated Black existence. I don't want you to be another person working their fingers to the bone night and day, proudly displaying a certain type of work ethic and mode of Black excellence, and ultimately, having nothing to show for it by way of actual, tangible wealth. And to be clear, the point of having wealth and assets 
isn't to just be another rich bitch for the sake of flashing fly shit for the world to see. Might feel good, but it's not really where you want to go. That fly shit mentality, in fact, often gets in the way of us building wealth. We've got to do away with this continual push to have a luxury lifestyle when we could be saving money to invest in the stock market or property or our own business enterprise. No, the point of the wealth is to have the access and the opportunity to buy our own liberation, to buy freedom in a world that for better or for worse operates under a capitalistic system. When you have access to assets, it allows you to make decisions about your life direction and general well-being that you wouldn't otherwise be able to make. And that is the quest I want you to be on, to center ownership as much as you can in everything that you do. Ownership of my media endeavors has been a cornerstone of me being able to build wealth in a way that speaks both to my professional passions and sociopolitical sensibilities. Let's look at my podcast, Holden Court, which debuted in 2020. The show marked the first time that I really took ownership of something as a part of my career. One reason I entered into a deal with Black Effect, Charlemagne, and the iHeart team for the podcast is that the terms were amenable to my own financial interest and, most important, because I would retain ownership rights. Other media companies were most certainly interested in the podcast, but I wouldn't enter into a deal with these clients because they required full ownership of an intellectual property that I had created and would host. And that just wasn't going to work for me. If I hadn't learned anything else in the past few years, I knew that I couldn't give away my ownership rights like that, not considering all that those who'd come before had survived. When it comes to business deals, always be real fucking curious when people don't want you to have something. Ownership might mean getting less money up front for a deal where you retain at least partial ownership as compared to what you might get if you sold away your rights to a show. But on the real, have faith that you'll make it up in the long run, that the passion that you'll put into running your own business will yield future financial rewards. The concept of ownership has to be paramount for us Black folks. There's a paradigm shift going on culturally that says we're centering ownership. So that's why I'm challenging you to routinely exercise discipline. It takes discipline to center ownership, which is one of the reasons that it took so long for Holden Court to come back for a second season. We had a very successful first season, but ended up being off the air for almost a year. As a content creator, it was fucking terrible to wait that long to get my ass back on the air and offer legal analysis to my audience. I missed my own show, and I certainly heard from listeners who were like, where are you? I could have easily just done another deal, but I had to exercise discipline and engage in negotiations that would elevate my stakes and ownership of the show. It was essential. And it was the only way I could proceed with this work in good conscience. And let's be real, y'all. 
ITE loves her some money on the table. You better believe it from my reaction to the people who were running over to negotiate long-term contracts with holding court and offering a lot of money. But these same entities wanted to fully own my intellectual property, and I simply couldn't allow that. So I had to use discipline and forego instant gratification for the sake of making a clear-headed, principled, ownership-centered decision. I know some of y'all might be listening to this and saying to yourself, well, that's good for you, Ebony, but I'm not in a position to negotiate with moneyed companies to start a business. Or you're like, I don't have capital of my own to invest in a business. And I say in response, it's all good. These same principles of discipline and centeredness can work for you regardless of your work status. Earl G. Graves Sr., who passed in 2020, was the esteemed founder of the magazine Black Enterprise, among other endeavors, and published the 1997 book How to Succeed in Business Without Being White, Straight Talk on Making It in America. The man was brilliant at what he did, maintaining a conscience while facing the reality of Black circumstances in America and speaking to workers at all levels. To have a successful career, you have to approach it as an entrepreneur, even if you are working for someone else, Graves once said. Your career is your own private business. You have to market yourself and your abilities and knowledge just as you would a product or service. In other words, to have a successful career, you have to approach it as a disciplined entrepreneur, even if you're working for someone else, even if your career is in fact more of a job. Your career is your own private business, and so you can thoughtfully position and highlight your abilities and knowledge, just as you might a product or service, in a way that can more likely lead to career advancement or at the very least cultivate the type of work life you want to have. I would offer that holding this type of attitude about your work is key to developing entrepreneurial opportunities as you see fit, and it's certainly conducive to having a more satisfactory professional life. Just please say no to coming to your job with any sort of attitude or projecting all of your emotional life stuff into business or your place of work. As a Black person, let your vision, your needs, and your desire to achieve inform how you show up for work and what your expectations for yourself will be. Let's say you're going into an office every day, working nine to five. What are the choices you're making with the income you're receiving? Are you able to put aside money to build assets simultaneously so that ownership can absolutely still take place in some way, whether it's saving for a down payment on a home or cultivating an investment portfolio in the stock market? Let's think of the ways in which choice was ruthlessly stripped from our ancestors and let that inform our path. You should constantly be centering ownership in your path, in your process, in your approach to the money you earn and the way you show up in spaces. Doing so is an integral component of blackness. When it comes to ownership, creativity and flexibility are supreme which we as Black people have specialized in 
in order to survive the Western world. When you think about what asset building looks like, for instance, a lot of us live in cities that make home ownership feel out of reach. And this is where creativity and flexibility come in. As of this writing, the average house in New York City is essentially a million dollars. And the average first-time homebuyer in New York still has to put down 20% on said property. The realities of this type of market are cost-prohibitive for tons of people. It was almost cost-prohibitive to me when it came to purchasing my house, even with my salary. And I don't mind saying that out loud. When I say we need to get creative, I mean exploring ideas like checking out the co-op and condo markets if a smaller space could work for you, or thinking about the notion of some kind of collaborative buy. If you're clear that your earnings and the amount of cash you have on hand won't be sufficient for a home down payment and a hefty mortgage, see if there's someone in your life with whom you could purchase the property together. Is the home large enough so that you could essentially have separate living spaces if you want to maintain a certain level of privacy and autonomy? Or would it be fine to share a living room, kitchen, and bathroom in a standard two-bedroom unit? There would, of course, be lots of things you'd need to discuss legally before going into such a venture with someone, and there'd most certainly be tons of red tape. But exploring these types of options is better than the latter. And on top of this, you'd be working together, combining your resources so that you can both work toward generating wealth for yourselves and the Black community. Another thing to keep in mind is that you don't necessarily have to live in the place you own. You can buy a whole house in Mississippi, Alabama, or Louisiana at much more affordable prices than you can find in more dense urban markets in the North and West. My mother did this, purchasing a whole fucking house for $70,000 cash in Montgomery, Alabama. So that's another option I think we need to be thinking about as black people. If we can't buy in Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., or New York, can we buy in Texas? Can we buy in South Carolina and have a potentially profitable rental property? My point here is that it's imperative for us to play with this concept of ownership, to allow the versatility, craftiness, and ingenuity that allowed us to survive under adverse circumstances to dictate our financial growth. Be flexible and open, but by all means, invest in your own beautiful, bountiful future. Thank you all so much for listening to the entirety of season two of Holden Court with Ebony K. Williams. Stay tuned. I promise you, season three, it's going to be worth the wait. And it's coming soon. As always, y'all stay prayed up. Keep the faith as we head into this fall season. Go ahead and get your trench coat and your boots ready. And as Dustin would say, read your terms and conditions. Holden Court is an Interval Present original production from Uppity Productions in association with Dossie Media. Executive producer and host, Ebony K. Williams. Co-host and producer, Dustin Ross. From Interval Presents, executive producers, Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Produced, of course, by Ashley J. Hobbs. Editing, sound design, and mix by Stephanie Morell. Original music by Epidemic Sound. Video editing by Kaysen Alexander and Courtney Deans. Consultant, Carla Wilmaris. Special thanks to operations lead, Sarah Yu. Business development lead, 
Sheffy, Ellen Swag, and marketing lead Samira Still. 